What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. When you say it's your favorite film, I don't know why you have to qualify it and say so far. Just stop watching other things. That's director Kelly Reichert, whose film First Cow is our shared number one film of the year so far, Josh. I can't promise we'll stop watching movies, but I don't think Reichert has to worry too much about the competition. Maybe not, but the competition probably wouldn't like us to take that approach. So yeah, we'll fit some more films in the rest of the year. When First Cow's theatrical run was cut short back in March, it went into hibernation pretty much like the rest of us. It's now available to rent on demand. This week on the show, our conversation with Riker and our review of First Cow. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Back in early March, one of the most anticipated films of the year for us, Josh, Kelly Riker's First Cow, finally came to theaters. And then, less than two weeks after its release, The COVID-19 pandemic forced the nation's movie theaters to close, along with just about everything else, meaning that most people never got a chance to see it. It wasn't quite the last movie I saw pre-pandemic. It was the penultimate. I think I fit in Birds of Prey just after First Cow. Yeah, that sounds right. And man, am I so grateful we were able to get First Cow because to have to sit for a few more months without seeing it, as many people had, that would have been torturous. Yeah, the pandemic also changed Reichert's plans to come to Chicago when we were scheduled to sit down with her for an interview. Fast forward now to July. First Cow is now finally available to rent on demand, and we got a chance to talk to Kelly Reichert by phone. Later in the show, we'll revisit our First Cow review from back in March, and hopefully more of you have had a chance to catch up with it now that it is available to rent. First, though, it is our conversation with Kelly Reichert. In addition to First Cow, Reichert's films include 2016 Certain Women that starred Kristen Stewart, Laura Dern, and her frequent collaborator Michelle Williams. Before that, she offered us Night Moves. That was about a trio of radical environmentalists, one of those played by Jesse Eisenberg. And she gave us, of course, Meek's Cutoff, which I think is still her masterpiece in Oregon Trail set drama, a film that, yeah, a lot of people consider among the very best of the last decade. Wendy and Lucy was the film before that one. This was a doomed road trip movie again with Williams. And then the first film that I saw of hers, Adam, I think you as well, 2006's Old Joy. That one, like First Cow, centers on male friendship. Reichert's debut film, River of Grass, that came out back in 1994. For First Cow, Reichert returned to the pioneer-era Pacific Northwest setting of Meek's Cutoff for a tale of unlikely friendship, capitalism, and, yes, oily cakes. In the movie, a cook from the East, played by John McGarrow, joins a group of fur trappers in Oregon. There he meets Orion Lee's King Lou, a Chinese immigrant. The two become friends and set out on a risky business venture together. Also... There is a cow. It's the first cow in the area, Josh. Indeed, floating down the river in one of the movies. uh, More memorable images, I'd say. Absolutely. Let's get to that conversation with Kelly Riker now. What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. My mother died when I was born, and then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Same place for cows. That's no place for white men either. 
I sense opportunity here. Kelly Riker, thanks so much for coming back on Film Spotting. It's great to have you. Nice to be here in, you know, virtually. <laughs> exactly. So Josh and I have both spoken very, very favorably of this film, actually our favorite film of the year so far between us. And we've both talked about it as almost a parable, uh, a movie that and a story that's seemingly very simple, the kind that maybe could even be passed down orally and without any heavy handedness or easy moralizing impart fundamental truths. Are, are we on the right path? Do you see First Cow that way? Um, I'm a visual person, mm-hmm. so thinking of it as a audible story, um, First Cow came from Jonathan Raymond's novel, The Half-Life. Uh, I, I'd have to think about it. I haven't thought about it in those terms. Uh, of course, I'm always thinking about it in images. Yes. So, but um, when you say... It's your favorite film. I don't know why you have to qualify it and say so far. Just stop watching other things. (laughs) (laughs) That seems fair. That seems fair. But I'm sure, you know, it does have like a, I I mean, I I think all those qualities that you're talking about exist. Um, I just, yeah, I haven't thought about it in those terms, Mm -hmm. but. Of course, I, I think maybe a better way to phrase that would have been if if you think about and I know that this sounds almost like it's simplifying, but whether or not you think about this project or any others in terms of um, imparting some kind of lesson or is there is there some is there something you're trying to teach uh, to the audience or not? No, no, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I no, I would not want to think in those terms. Uh, I mean, uh, I hope it has layers to it and that there's things to think about and um questions to ask uh as far as i mean ultimately i think like to focus on the friendship and and you know i kept the blake quote in the beginning that's in john's novel to remind myself that ultimately you know i'm making a film about friendship and there are these other themes of capitalism and uh all, you know, running throughout the movie, but um, it'd have to be considered like, you know, just in figuring out how to do a scene, sort of where the power lies in a scene. So it's not like I'm not thinking about those things, but I'm um, only in terms of how they relate to Cookie and King Lou, not in terms of uh, some moral message or tea. I, um, the world should not be being taught from me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you about one of those friends specifically here, John Magaro, and his performance. It, it's one that I've seen him in, in a few other things, but really struck me yeah. uh, as a very soulful performance, a, a very restrained performance. I think during our review, I joked that the the broadest thing he does, maybe the biggest or most showy thing he does is is a smile, you know, and it, it really just kind of melts you. And I, I'm just curious about the, the process of, of casting him and working with him he had been in the sort of orbit like we all knew who he was and uh rudin who scott rudin who produced the film had was more familiar with his uh theater work but i thought he was not who i'd expect to see in the forest in a western um but just as soon as i started um I start. I skyped with him, and I, 
I knew just from talking to him that um, I got really attached to him as, as, as Cookie. He's really disarming. He's, as you say, he has some of um, Cookie's traits uh, to him. And he has, uh, I don't know, he has really expressive eyes. He's, uh, sorry, I'm so inarticulate. I'm having my first cup of coffee, I swear, <laughs> in an hour. I We're in the same uh, place, Kelly. It's um, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I liked John and other things. And I started um, Skyping with him and talking to him about cookie and I sent him some, you know, like Lewis and Clark cookbooks and he started, he was interested in cooking and he started doing some of these, um, recipes from, you know, the early 1800s in his, in a hell's kitchen apartment. And, but just, um, it wasn't a reading anything like that. I don't think he ever read in any way for cookie. I don't think I saw him, saying cookies lines till we were on set and he was in his uh cookie costume um but there was everything about him uh i never felt on the fence about it i felt really like oh this is an interesting zone and um and i thought he had really these eyes that honestly um this is a you know his eyes kind of remind me of um Evie, the cows, like they both have these super soulful eyes. And uh, he just, um, yeah, McGarrel was the easy casting. Um, Yeah, he just seemed like Cookie from the start. Uh, King Lou was a much, uh, the Orion Lee search was a much more difficult search. It's all a cow today. Wasn't far from Chief Actor's house. In a meadow. Yeah. I'd like some of that milk. Hey, I'm not a milk drinker. Doesn't agree with me. I wouldn't drink it. I'd use it for cookies. Or scones. Nothing better than buttermilk biscuits. Kelly, this is Josh, and I wanted to follow up on the character of Cookie a little bit here. What was interesting to me, and and you're kind of circling around this a little bit, I think, is that in First Cow, there's hardly a woman in sight, but it's full of what I think would traditionally be considered femininity. And Cookie is, is for me, hugely a part of that. The first time we see him, the trappers, you know, they're killing, they're clamoring in, in the camp. And he's gathering mushrooms. He's tending to supplies. He's preparing their meals. Um, King Lou, when he welcomes him to his hut in the woods, he invites him to make yourself easy. I think that's what he says. And what does that mean to Cookie? He sweeps the floor. He shakes out a pelt that serves as a rug. And then he gathers some flowers for a bouquet. So I'm curious... Was that part of Cookie's character from Jonathan Raymond's novel? Is it something John Magaro maybe brought to the role? Or or was that a point of emphasis on your part that, that you wanted to bring to the film? Yeah, I would argue that that's uh, sweeping the floor and doing all the domestic things, that that has to be considered a feminine uh, sure. trait. I think that, uh, you know, there was, you know, the idea is that that's his, you know, 
that he he's a dude and that's his um you know those are his inclinations and that the idea of uh every man as a battler is just too narrow um so i think those are all just him uh expressing himself um i mean uh in the book it's in in the script it's not exactly that i mean it's you know they're gonna we they were going to set up a home. Um, you're just, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to find ways to get those ideas that might be more interior ideas into some kind of physical realm. And uh, I'm letting, you know, that play out uh, is just a way to do that. So, um, I mean, yeah, it was planned, if that's what you mean. But then, you know, they have a lot of room to... Uh, decide exactly you know like here are the things cleaning the cottage you know mcgarrow got into it and um there is and there isn't room for spontaneity i mean everything's you know if someone's going to shake out a rug you have to have a rug there for them to <laughs> shake out you know you have to but you know if you um set up the camera and you give people time it's definitely gives the actors room to um you know, be cookie and being King Lou and, uh, and sort of dive in and use their physicalness to, uh, express what they want to express. So I think, um, yeah, I do think McGarrow's bringing a ton to it. Uh, you just have to give actors the space, I guess, to do it and then let them do their thing. Sure. And I would agree with you. You know, those are not activities that are necessarily inherently gendered. I'm thinking more of the the tradition, especially for that time and place, how Cookie might stand out. I did want to ask you, too, about um, just sort of your relationship to nature in general, not only as a filmmaker, but as a person, really. When you were on the show before, Kelly, talking to Adam about certain women, you mentioned that you had this rule on set, no beauty shots. And I think your films do have a unique offer a unique depiction of nature. It's not the heaven some movies give us or the hell other movies give us. It's a more mundane reality. I, I think your camera is in the weeds a lot. And so I'm really curious to just hear what your personal relationship to nature is. Do you spend a lot of time outdoors? Is it something you need in your daily life? Or is it something you're interested in mostly through your films from, from maybe a, a certain distance? Interesting. Uh, well, you know, I lived in I mean, I'm from Florida, which has a very different sort of um, landscape than the Northwest. And so, you know, I think early on I was just so taken by uh, the look out, you know, just how different it was than what I had grown up with. Uh, but, you know, I lived in New York for 30 years and lived in the city, like through a lot of a lot of this making of these films. So, uh it's in a way um, like when you're dropping into these places, it's almost easier to see uh, things particularly like now that I'm out here and I spend so much time here and I've spent so much time scouting the Northwest and it's like, I have to work harder to see it as a, and, and I realize when I go back and I teach at Bard suddenly like the, uh, the Hudson river paintings make sense to me. Like I've become aware of the light out there and how it, you know, it's almost what you're not looking at every day gives you a 
a different, you know, fresh maybe perspective of looking at it. But um, but I'm not like a person who's out camping all the time, if mm-hmm. that's what you mean. <laughs> Of course, a key part of how we see nature reflected in this film uh, has to do with your choice of aspect ratio. And I think it's so effective here to go with that 4-3 approach as you did in Meek's Cutoff. Where in the process do you make that decision? Is it? It's pretty early on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the fact that we were going to be in the forest and uh, these high trees and just to be able to make the most of them. And it's a such an intimate frame. I mean, I'm just drawn to it as a frame. I think it's a, you know, for close-ups, it's just a much more flattering frame than uh, a close-up in a rectangle shape never looks quite right to me. But, um, but it made sense for this film. And also there were some practical things that it let me do. Like I, uh, when I was scouting and I found the place that I wanted to shoot, uh, like where the chief factor is up above uh and cookies down below in the hiding at the cliff area you know like i couldn't really do that in another shape frame so once you once you if you decide early on what the frame is based on some basic elements like we're going to be in this forest um everything we're dealing with are sort of these vertical lines we should go with the square then you can start you know, uh, sort of exploiting that, making the most of it when, when you're scouting and designing your shots. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that little King Lou's hutch doesn't really make sense. I think in anything but a square, it's a tiny little room and, uh, you could see the drippy ceiling and the, um, dirt floor in the square and, and, and you wouldn't in the, in a, more rectangular shape, a wider frame. Uh, to close here, I-, I want to ask you about films that I understand were an influence on you. I think you can definitely see it in in First Cow. The Apu trilogy from Satyajit Ray, for us, for Josh and myself, were shamefully, those films were blind spots up until about five years ago, and we rectified that with a, a deep dive into Ray's films, be- including the the trilogy. i just love to hear how you discovered those films and, and, and the impact they had. I just randomly took a uh, Indian cinema class in art school. And most of it was like really big Bollywood stuff. And then in it, it was also the Ray films. And I was kind of overwhelmed by them at, at, you know, whatever, at age 20, seeing them. I just, uh, I don't know. I just thought, I just didn't know what to make of them, really. But they really stuck with me. And um, I think I first went back to them when we were just around the time we were shooting Wendy and Lucy. And um, and then, you know, it wasn't maybe this is how you ended up seeing them. They The prints came back around mm-hmm. not that long ago. And uh, they were in New York when I was in New York. And then they were came out to Portland when I was in Portland. So I got to, you know, been able to see them projected again which i haven't seen them projected since art school but just everything about um well you know like raise someone to go back to all the time for sound design because the sound designs are incredible um you know he's you know shooting these peasant families and he's really down on the ground within the camera's always down low with them and 
he can really make the most of a um, those uh, scenes in the little cottages where you're in this super intimate space. And then he also he works with uh, I think his natural world is like there's never you never see a shot that's just some let me show you the landscape shot. It's always working in the scene with the characters and it, it always has a purpose. Mm. And so I don't know, it just seemed like a perfect place to start a conversation with Chris Blavel. Uh, just in just when we get to the, you know, when we're at the very beginning, like it seemed like the, a good place to start was just mm-hmm. to watch those films. And so the, a lot of the, just the economy of how Ray shoots those films, it's, it's all just, uh, you know, pan, simple pans and tilts. There's almost never like a camera move or two things are happening at once. And it really works with the economy of the people whose lives he's depicting. And so we, we kind of picked up that language for Cookie and um, King Lou. And, you know, it's not, there's nothing more elaborate with the camera unless you're with the chief factor and in the chief factor's house. And so everything is very uh, sparse uh, and kind of following these rules that are, I mean, they're, they're simple, but when you're just sticking to them, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, becomes you know but i it's nice to have a sort of decide on a language the film's going that we're going to take um i i sort of like having a kind of strategy like that and um so that was just uh yeah i mean those films are they're just they're, they're about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And hopefully people listening will not only, if they haven't seen First Cow yet, will want to seek that out and then go back and, and check out those Ray films as well. Kelly Reichert, thanks again so much for your time. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate you talking about the movie. Um, stay safe, Thank guys. you. You too. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. It seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? A royal cow. Until she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. And Soapy's one of those. Our thanks again to two-time film spotting guest Kelly Reichert for taking the time to chat with us. Glad we finally made that happen. First Cow is available to rent on most platforms. For more interviews, including my earlier conversation with Reichert, visit filmspotting.net slash interviews. And if it's the best film of the year so far, then it deserves to be reviewed twice. We'll replay our first cow conversation next, and we're also going to play a brand new round of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Enough with the Cadillacs and the Hampton Estates And enough from the people that tell you you need that to be something
the enemy tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. That's from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Is there dialogue we can play from Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, Josh? I don't remember a ton of dialogue. Kenneth Branagh, no. I think, got some play there. So Yeah, he's got a line or two. That movie was your number one film of 2017, Josh. And was it, up to the start of this overview, your number one Nolan, or was it number two? It was number one, indeed. So we'll wow. see. We'll see if it stays there when we get all done with this. Okay, I think I had it in my 6 through 10 back in 2017, so I'm also a fan, but I'm not sure it's going to beat out films like Interstellar and The Prestige and Memento. I guess we will know for sure as we wrap up our Nolan Oob review with Dunkirk next week. Unfortunately, the reason we undertook this retrospective, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which had already been delayed at least twice, right? Has now been removed from the release calendar entirely. You knew this was going to happen, didn't you, Josh? Yeah, but to see it happen, you know, it, it really does hurt. All those dates they kept teasing us, at least there was some sense of hope. You knew deep down, probably not going to be a reality, but just being able to think about a potential release date, now that's gone as well. Yeah, the Uber view has been rewarding, though, in many ways, but we could also point to, at minimum, getting to squabble a little bit over Inception, me being wrong about that movie this time, and you continuing to be dead wrong about Interstellar. So, you know, we we do fulfill expectations sometimes here on the show. And of course, as usual, both films, I think we can say that we both like to different degrees, but sure. you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to fight about them. That's right. Again, we will wrap up the Oeuvre Review next week with Dunkirk. We'll pair that with the Oeuvre Review Awards. Right now, the categories Sam has penciled in are favorite lead and supporting performances, favorite scene, the Nolan moment, and the film. That's kind of what we usually do with our marathon awards. I think those categories all apply. I don't remember the listener. I'll give them proper credit, surely, if we do end up going with this name. I think the name suggestion we got for the Oeuvre Review Awards was the Bwah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the boas. Good, the boas, I, good like, idea. We might need to work on our effect there, our sound effect. But yeah. <laughs> it's a little it's a little much. It's a little cumbersome. But you know what? We might go with it. If you have a better idea and you don't want to hear me say that again, send it to us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Also next week we'll have results for the current film spotting poll. We're asking you, what is your favorite Christopher Nolan film? Now, Josh, you have heard a little bit about how the results stack up so far. Surprised at all? Yeah, I am. I think some of the familiar titles are up there, are in the mix. The Dark Knight, Inception. But the one that currently has the lead, I wouldn't have guessed. I'll just say that for now. Okay. We would love to get your vote. If you haven't participated already, we'd love to get your comments. And if you do leave a comment in the poll, please let us know where you're listening from. All of that can be done over at filmspotting.net. The poll is right there on the main page. All right, let's play a little Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Well, well, if it isn't the smoker. Remember me, amigo? Hmm. Of course you do. El Paso. It's a small world. Yes, and very, very bad. 
Now, come on, you light another match. I generally smoke just after I eat. Why don't you come back in about ten minutes? Ten minutes, you'll be smoking in hell. Get out! Stay calm. That was Klaus Kinski and Lee Van Cleef in 1965's For a Few Dollars More. It was written by Sergio Leone, Fulvio Marcella, and Luciano Vincenzoni, directed, of course, by Leone. So you got to break out your full psycho playing Klaus Kinski. <sighs> yeah. And I got to go as deep a radio voice as I could possibly go for <laughs> Lee Van Cleef. I think we both fell a little short, though. <laughs> Yeah. Along with that massacre, we did have a review of Hamilton, now on Disney Plus, and an 8 from 84 review of The Cotton Club. The tie-in, of course, we were paying tribute to Ennio Morricone, the great film composer who did so much of Sergio Leone's work, including for a few dollars more. And we do plan to properly pay tribute to Morricone here, maybe in the next month, we're hoping, on the show and do our top five Morricone music moments or at minimum film scores, right, Josh? Sounds great. I'm already figuring out what I have to rewatch, what I have to watch for the first time. That's what I'm looking forward to putting together. Well, I think if you look at IMDb, he only has literally something like 517 yeah. credits. So maybe, maybe we'll have to give ourselves about 10 years. Maybe the, the 30th anniversary of film spotting will do that top five. I don't think I'm going to get to them all. <laughs> Reach into the not so brimming film spotting hat. I guess my Lee Van Cleef and your Klaus Kinski weren't that recognizable or some listeners need to do some homework on this trilogy. Reach in and pick out the winner. This week's winner is Andrew Hertz from Miami, Florida. Congratulations, Andrew. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. Oh, man, am I excited for this massacre after just listening to the clip for the first time, trying to get into character a little bit. This mm -hmm. one will be easy for me because I'm playing myself. I'm playing a dull guy. <laughs> but, Josh, if you do anything even approximating this performance, any mimicry whatsoever, this will be the most excited I've I've ever heard you in like eight years of working together. Yeah, I've got to amp up my energy level here. It's It's been a long day, I'll be honest, kind of a rough day. Yeah. And, and here now I've got, to, <laughs> I've got to bring this level of excitement. I'll see what I can do. Okay. Well, I'll be honest with you. My brain is so mush right now, I don't even know why we're massacring this scene. I can't give any hints. I have no idea what the connection is to this show. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a note. Sam left. He chose the scene. And it's tangential. But it makes sense, and there may be only one connection. Now I say that, and we always get great connections that get, listeners yeah, seven more. pick up on. So, but as okay. far as I know, there's only one small connection we have in mind at this moment. And it did just hit me while you were talking. Okay, I think I got it. I think I got it. Okay, you are going to start it off. I don't know that you're ready, but you're going to have to be. And action. What have you got there? Oh, 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 you found cheese and not just any cheese, tome de chevre de pays that will go beautifully with my mushroom. And, uh, and, 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 oh, this rosemary, this rosemary with, uh, uh, maybe if, maybe a few drops from this sweet grass. Well, throw it on the pile, I guess. And then, well, you know, we don't want to throw this in with the garbage. This is special. But we're supposed to return to the colony before sundown or dad's gonna... There are possibilities unexplored here. We gotta cook this. Now, exactly how we cook this is the real question. 
Oh, yeah. And, and scene. <laughs> scene. You know what that kind of felt like when I'm really excited about a movie you could care less about? And I'm going right. on and on and on about it on the show. <laughs> and then I get a, yeah. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, I'm like, we'll we'll throw it on the pile, Josh. Sure. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 10th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can. Take it on our own terms. That's from the trailer for Kelly Reichert's first cow. We reviewed it when it played briefly in limited release back in March before the pandemic forced theaters to close. In June, we both named it our number one film of the year so far. We've mentioned it before, but it is currently available to rent on most platforms. If you haven't devoted the time, we highly recommend that you do. And then you know what? You can come back and listen to this review. I taste London in this cake. Bakery I once knew in South Kensington. Astonishing. Where did you learn to do that? I was indentured to a baker in Boston, sir. He taught me the trade. Well, good baker. (laughs) Indeed, he was. Adam, if I was a good friend and podcast partner, I would have made some oily cakes and brought them with me today. No kidding. Unfortunately, all I have to offer is this setup for our review of Kelly Reichert's First Cow, in which a cook slash baker in early 19th century Oregon teams up with a Chinese immigrant to sell the donut-like specialties at a trading post on the edge of the wilderness. Business booms for Cookie and King Lou, played by John Magaro and Orion Lee, but there's a catch. The two men can only make the delicacy by stealing milk at night from the cow of the outpost's governor, the first and only cow in the territory. First Cow is an intimately told tale, friendship as captured by gentle gestures in front of crackling fires. But as that plot summary suggests, it can also be read as a wider metaphor. Is the movie a critique of colonialism and manifest destiny? Does it have more contemporary resonance in terms of economic theory? Should we read these as capitalism cakes in some way? Mm. Or as you suggested, Adam, not long after we came back from our screening of the movie a week or two ago, should First Cow be read in a simpler way? as a parable. Now, speaking of that screening, it was really not fair that they showed us this movie about 11 a.m. I was going to say that. I was starving anyway. Oh, my goodness. My stomach started grumbling like crazy. We're creeping up on dinner time right about now, so there may be a few stomach grumbles on this recording. I do want to know, did First Cow satisfy your appetite for another Kelly Reichert period piece set in Oregon Territory, her other one, Meek's Cutoff, made both of our top 20 films of the 2010s? More specifically, how was it satisfying for you as a parable, Adam? What do those oily cakes mean? Yeah, well, I'll take more Kelly Reichert wherever she might be shooting. I do love that you bring up the oily cakes, though, because despite the fact that it was around lunchtime and we were both hungry at that screening, I think it really speaks to the attention to detail in this film and the authenticity of it, that you are watching those being prepared and you are watching those being sold and gobbled up. And all you can think is, I 
would do anything for one of those mm -hmm. right now. The same way all of those people are reacting, that's how I was reacting. You could almost smell them as they were being made. There's an element of parable right away to this film in the main character, John Magaro, called Cookie, as he encounters the Orion Lee character, King Lou, where he's naked, he's shivering out in the forest, he's on the run, and he's clearly desperate, and Cookie helps him. And then that kindness is returned by King Lou when they encounter each other later in the film. That all feels like the stuff of Parable to me. But as you get deeper into the film, and you mentioned Capitalism Cakes, the story of these two men and their business venture does take on more of an allegorical resonance, I'd say. You realize that Reichert is critically, but not polemically, saying something about the nature of capitalism, the so-called American dream, this whole idea of being self-made men, which they are striving for. I would say the King Luke character striving at least more vocally or more explicitly for it. But this critique comes in this idea Reichert explores that despite your intentions and really maybe despite your product even, there's almost no way to avoid exploitation mm. of someone, of some group or something in this case. And at best, you're going to compromise your principles. At worst, you might succumb to some kind of corrupting spirit. But where it did really click for me as a parable, Josh, this idea, as you said, a simple, small story, but imparting a large moral lesson. And I go back to my junior year of college, I'll give my bona fides here. My favorite class, one of my favorite classes in college was advanced biblical studies. It was just me and two other students and the professor who was also the chaplain at the school. And it was devoted entirely to the parables of Jesus. And as I recall from that class, there's usually some kind of twist to the story. There's an element of surprise. There's a subversion of expectations. And Early on in this film, and here I'm going to be very careful because I do not want to spoil anything, partly because I'm not a monster, mainly because I really want people to see this film. But early on in their success, we encounter a character, and it really is fair to say we encounter a character because I'm not even sure our main characters take note of him, but we as viewers do because Reichert trains her camera right on him, and there's a moment that happens between him and a couple of the other characters, an exchange that should take place, I'll just say, and it doesn't. And you see the disappointment and it registers again because of the way Riker shoots it. But in that moment, I was pretty sure that character was going to be completely inconsequential to the plot. And for the most part, that's true, except we do meet him again later in the movie. You're looking kind of confused. No, it's I, been a while since we've no, seen I, it. So I know what, who you're do you know where I'm now. going? I just clicked. Yep. And and that's the part for me, amidst everything else we're saying that makes the film feel like a parable, that's the one for me where you almost say, in hindsight, had that moment played out differently, mm. would the future play out differently? Yeah. The future that we then see enacted, might that have been different if some people had just acted with more kindness to this yeah. person in yeah. that moment? And that's where you really do tap into... Reichert's kind of method of storytelling. Yeah, so in, in a sense, it turns the way you can see it likely going, but it also sort of turns on a dime, right. on a very small thing. Um, so I do think that's true. I think you're also right to bring up this idea of exploitation. I think about two different characters, I think, describe the Oregon Territory at two different points of the film. One uses it uses this, a land of abundance, and then I think someone else describes it as a land of riches. Mm -hmm. And nearly everyone we see in the movie 
except for those, the indigenous people who we get fleeting glimpses of, but mostly it's white Europeans. Nearly everyone here has come to exploit that. And in the process, they end up exploiting each other, right? Including as well, the natural world and the people who are there. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question, you know, and this goes back to the, is this a critique or is this a parable? For me, is that exploitation built into the system or is it part of human nature? And I think for me, what was really interesting about First Cow is that it was not polemical at all, as you say. Um, and going back to the biblical parables, they too can be read in many different ways. And you can come away with many different interpretations yeah, of them. And you can think, read them as critiques. Yes. And I think the same thing could be true here. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is, um, you know, there is a reading of this film that's pro-capitalist. <laughs> you know, uh, these bootstrap guys want to build their own empire. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reading of this that is also socialist. Well, who, who owns all the materials exactly. that are needed for them to build this legit business. Mm -hmm. um, they're shady capitalists. They are stealing, after all. So that's what kind of makes me zoom out and say, this is a really interesting parable of greed, just the way sure. it evidences itself in different people who are in different social positions um, and have different opportunities. And I just think it's really interesting that way. I, th mm -hmm. I think there are many layers to a movie that has very little dialogue, is incredibly patient and not does not give into any sort of speechifying. You're right. The reason those oily cakes are so appealing is because we spend time with them making them. Mm -hmm. And anyone and even who's talking about the making talking about the ingredients, anyone who's who's made a meal that took time and a lot of care and effort knows it tastes so much better yeah. <laughs> than something that was just dropped in front of you, right? And that's what Reichert does here. She not only does that with the oily cakes, she does that with this entire world that is centuries ago um, with people who live in completely different ways by emphasizing things like the squelching of the mud around this fort, the fires I mentioned, there's a squealing pig um, that shows up once mm -hmm. or twice and becomes part of the ambient soundtrack it's the same sort of stuff. I remember you talking about the squeaky wheels and Meek's cutoff of the wagons. Um, it's foregrounding that sort of stuff that builds this world so convincingly and puts us right there. Yeah, and you said it's a parable of greed, but what makes the story so compelling is that our two main characters, our two friends, and of course, like a lot of Reichert films, it's first and foremost maybe even a story of friendship more than even whatever it might be saying about capitalism and greed, but they're not greedy. There's nothing inherently greedy about them. There is something in them that wants to strive for more and wants to make money, but I think it's about something more. In the case of Cookie, he is an artist. He, he does perceive himself as someone who wants to create. He wants to put time and care and effort into these, and he wants to serve his audience, if you will, right? He wants to make them just a little bit sweeter. He thinks that's going to appeal to these people a little bit more. And you've got in King Lou someone who more than just trying to amass riches wants to establish himself. He wants yes. to carve his own path. And that's the key line for me. Yes, there's lots of talk about the land being this land of abundance and land of riches. But really the line of the film is one he says to Cookie, which is history hasn't gotten here yet. Mm -hmm. And it's such a great line. I don't know if Reichert wrote it or it was in the original material based on the John Raymond book. They've worked together on some other screenplays and they work together on this one. But for him, he loves this territory because he's coming from a place in China that's defined by family heritage and what village you're born into and this culture that's been established for centuries that if you're going to be there, you sort of have to fall in line with. Right. And he gets to come over to America and it's just all about opportunity. Yeah. It's all about him being 
in theory, once you take, of course, race and you take all sure. these other things out of it, which you can't take out of it, but you can at least in theory begin to explore and follow that dream. And he's on the right path. Yeah, the movie pays attention to both the possibility of that dream and the limits on it because he is not white, which gives Cookie an advantage here. But this performance by Orion Lee, who I was unfamiliar with from before, is so interesting and really instructive for the film, I think, because this is a guy who's up against a lot. We meet him, as you said, completely desperate, on the run from something else. He's looked at askance, in this fort by everyone else, but he has a serenity to him. Mm -hmm. And another line that he says at one point, uh, he mentions to Cookie how he's traveled all over, obviously has come very far. He says, uh, I believe different things in different places. And this is, it gives you this sense of this guy who is both in the middle of the story of his life, but somehow above it and observing it and recording it hmm. too and learning along the way for his next challenge. Right. And not being rigidly defined. No. Letting, letting the space he's in. But he sees the opportunity for that to start happening yeah. now because this is this plan is not just practical on the part of the two of them. For for King Lou, it's existential. It's a chance for him to, set, to define who he is. He's going to become a businessman and this is his opportunity and that's why he convinces Cookie, who might not exactly have that sort of drive to to take the risks that involve stealing mm -hmm. the milk over the cover of night. And I, I do like that performance, but I also love what John Magaro is doing okay. with Cookie. I mean, he's the early front runner for performance of the year. Okay. Love I love mean, him. I love him that think, much in this movie. I think they're both great. I do um, think they're both great. Yeah. And what Magaro is doing here is bringing he, he's painting a picture of a guy who's almost too gentle for this world and in a sense he's bringing this traditionally feminine presence into a place there are very few women in this movie mm -hmm. so into a place that does not have that at all and has us kind of reorient our perception of about what does it mean to be feminine what does it mean to be masculine the first time we see cookie uh, he's with some fur trappers out in the wilderness, and these guys Very are always macho. threatening each other, wrestling in the background. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a completely—he's gathering mushrooms. He's tending to the camp, handling all these domestic duties. Yep. And this continues throughout the movie, even when he meets King Lou, when he's introduced, when he's brought to the shack, King Lou's shack. I love how— He's told, make yourself easy. Right. Which you would so think, what does he do? Instead of like grabbing a thing of whiskey and chugging it, yeah. he starts sweeping he up. He picks up a broom, a makeshift broom. Yeah, he picks broom. up a broom. He mm -hmm. shakes out the pelt that's serving yep. as a rug. He brings in a bouquet of flowers. My favorite touch on this end is when he's in that makeshift saloon back at the fort and a scuffle breaks out and they want to take it outside. And for some reason, one of the guys involved in the scuffle is holding a baby, yep. a, little, a little baby carriage. He gives it to Cookie. Like, right. obviously, this is the, the one person who might. Watch my baby while I go kick this guy's ass. And it was just, again, like this sort of different perspective on what it means to be feminine. For sure. Whether you're a man or a woman. Yeah. I think that's a really great observation because I didn't put it as I watched it explicitly in those terms. I thought about it in the sense of their partnership. Just the fact that he immediately does feel so comfortable that he starts making it a home. Mm -hmm. Of course, then you're right. The logical progression from that is he does take on the more traditionally female role in that scenario. His name is Cookie. He's the one who's doing the cooking. He's the one who's doing the cleaning for the most part. And King Lou is the guy who is the businessman. He's mm -hmm. the one with the brain who is trying to direct kind of how this future 
business should grow for them. And I think that is a fascinating twist, having both those characters be men in this scenario for Riker to pull on us. Yeah, and I think it it does portray a friendship. I, I didn't get any hint of this being, you know, sexualized absolutely in any not. way, although they form a domestic mm-hmm. partnership. Absolutely. Yep. And I've said feminine before. I should also say masculine. I mean, what it really does is show us a different way to be masculine. Yeah. Not the in this cookie, world, not in this time and place. That would be accepted point. in this time and yes. place. No, absolutely. But it forms this domestic unit that is really beautiful mm-hmm. in, in each kind of serving each other, serving their life together in different ways that are both necessary. Yeah. And um, it's kind of what makes the suspense add up as you get a sense the longer they try to pull this scheme, it's the only cow in the territory. I mean, pretty right. soon someone's going to figure it out that this domestic Eden they've created is going to come crashing down. Yeah, I think most importantly in their roles, it's that it's who they are. They're being true to themselves yes. at all times, even if you take any traditional gender norms out of it. I do want to go back to Magaro real quick because I was that impressed with his performance. And he's someone I have seen before. Not sure I knew him by name. Definitely didn't recognize him here. And I think the big bushy beard has a lot to do with that. But just a little bit of background. Is he an actor you feel no, like you're familiar with? No, he was to me too. Okay, so... 42 IMDb credits going back to 2005. Of course, that's including a lot of TV shows and other types of things. I saw him. We saw him in War Machine, the David Mishad film on Netflix. We saw him in The Big Short, and he also is in Carol. And those all came after the movie that introduced him to me, which was 2012's Not Fade Away, David Chase's movie, his first film, Post Sopranos. And that's a film set back in the 1960s. Magaro plays Doug, the main character, who basically decides he's going to devote his energy full time to rock and roll after the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And Chase has always described the movie as about one of the bands that didn't make it. And I think he's very good in that role. But again, He's kind of been lost to me ever since then, even though I've seen him in a few smaller roles here and there. And you watch him in this film, and there is just a kindness, I suppose. There's a grace to him. The best word I can come up with is a soulfulness to him. And he does it as subtly as Riker shoots the entire film. It's his ability to impart so much with a simple look. And in fact, the biggest acting I think he does in the entire film And this is how small and quiet the film is, that a moment where he looks up at the cow and smiles broadly, Mm -hmm. right? We just haven't seen that from him or really anybody else in this space. This is a hard life. He has a moment where he can finally smile in that way, and it really does disarm you. And the subtlety with which Magaro portrays Cookie here was really astonishing to me. It's a nice moment, and it also connects back to the exploitation idea because yes, he's stealing the cow's milk, but he's the one you get a sense yeah. treats the cow the best. Right. He talks the to the cow her might not mind. And <laughs> I don't I think I think he's the cow's best friend. Yes. He, and at one point the story is that the great shot, you know, there are no ostentatious shots. Well there's one maybe we can get to. But there is a great shot of the cow arriving on that raft, just like serenely floating on the river, completely out of place. Right. Um, but but just looking somehow serene still, um, using that word again, I think it's it's a quality of this movie. Um, but on the journey, there was also supposed to be a steer and I believe a calf. And there's a throwaway line that those two died, were lost along the way. And Cookie says something to the cow as he's milking her at night. I'm sorry to hear you lost. And it's another example of the kindness yeah. um, that you're talking about, that this animal, you know, animals are seen in this place as 
just crude material yeah. that he's taking the time to form this sort of relationship. You mentioned the the subtlety of the acting and, and connected it to Reichert's filmmaking. We should probably spend a little time on that because, as I said, there aren't really showy shots here, but this goes back to how she shoots nature. And I think you got into this with her in your previous interview. Um, and she said something about no beauty shots on the set of certain women. Mm-hmm. They weren't going for that in Montana. Um, and there's something similar here. The camera's almost always in the weeds yep. in a way. We should mention she's using once again the 4-3 aspect ratio so you're not getting these that wide... That she did on Meeks. Correct. That mm-hmm. You're not getting these wide landscape shots. And so it's nature is just kind of, you know, it's there. It's part of the life. It's part of the background. And yet she still gives it um, that authenticity of place and of time that is compelling. The ostentatious shot is the one at one point Cookie will just say he gets concussed. He's awakening from this and has a bleary point of view shot of him looking out the window of a cabin and sees an older Native American man doing some ceremonial movements slowly against these windswept trees. Mm -hmm. And with the bleariness and the framing of the window, it is like – it's incredibly – Showy, and I'm. I'd love to hear get <laughs> for your, Reichert. For Reichert, yeah. But yeah. I'd love to get your take on that. I in Meek's cutoff. I don't think it's a case of you know trying to exoticize the indigenous peoples there because she definitely has a deep respect for that element of this time mm-hmm. and place. We've seen that in Meek's cutoff, especially. But it does just kind of jump out. It seems like it's a vision that yes. drops in on Cookie. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, I thought it was effective. I think it is giving us the exact feeling that we're supposed to have in that moment as he is waking up and recovering and is in this kind of other state. And I think that it's important, too, to her that we do see in this small story that is mostly about these two friends, she does always make time for some of these characters on the periphery, including Native American characters, Mm -hmm. which would have been true to this time. And I think that gets back to the authenticity. For me, I just wanted to tie that four by three framing back to what I was saying about Magaro and his performance, because I think they obviously go hand in hand. And if we do get a chance at some point to talk to Reichert, I'll ask her about this. If we ever talk to Magaro, I'll ask him about this. But in basic terms, when you think about film acting, people always talk about the transition from stage to screen. And he's done a lot of stage stuff as well. And the obvious difference being that you have to be a lot smaller. The camera captures everything. It registers every little move. So less is more always on camera. Well, I suspect that Magaro and Riker both also had to be aware that less is even more when it's a four by three frame, sure. right? Where now it's really emphasizing everything that's happening within that frame. And most of the time, it's Cookie's face. You get the sense sometimes of those tall trees behind them that that not as wide frame of course, does capture. But for the most part, it's these faces. And I think it's that stillness and that ability of Magaro to be so restrained within that four by three frame that's really the wonder of the performance. Yeah, that definitely um, helps focus our attention on him. And he's up to the task for sure. Another performance we should probably mention, one that I think was probably immediately recognizable, I think, for both of us is by Toby Jones, mm-hmm. who's the the governor slash the commander of the fort. I think he's basically in charge of this this region here, and he's the owner of the cow as well. So he shows up in a great, you know, you don't think of Reichert's films as laugh out loud funny, but the first time he gets in line for an oily cake, you know, not knowing that it's completely possible because of his cows is kind of a nice moment. It is. And then he also turns that when they visit his home, he asks them to bake a different dish and bring it for an event at his home. And the look on his face when King Lou enters the room 
and then dares to speak. Mm-hmm. It's he yep. just kind of Riker suddenly takes note of that. Takes note of that, and it's just you know, it's an it's another little detail that's painting um, what you have to believe is a very accurate portrait of this time and place. Yeah, I think in general how she dispenses information to us, what we need to see, what blanks she allows us to fill in what blanks we need to fill in and what we can fill in as viewers. She just really inherently understands. And I want to mention too, that there's a framing device though. I'm not so sure it's a framing device if it's only at the beginning and not also at the end, but we start in the present day. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. And I did love that after this kind of prelude, we go back to the 1820s, but there's no major transition at all for a second. You're not sure that you're not in the exact same space and these characters share the same time and place. And I love the implication that there is a certain inevitability to the sweep of history, to the story of these two characters. I think that's there inherently as more information does get dispensed to us. We know where this is going. Mm -hmm. And rather than that spoiling anything, it just makes it even more suspenseful. Absolutely. And it also suggests that this land that we're talking so much about and that this character we meet at the beginning, played by Aaliyah Shawkat, what she's digging into, she's digging into this ground. It tells you what this whole region, what this territory was founded on, yeah, right? There's... What this country was founded on, this idea that the legacy of it mm-hmm. is is sacrifice and its struggles. And in this case, it's literally in the soil. It's really poignant, too, though, because we will then go on to see a story we're going to become deeply invested in. And it shows you that it's a story that's been forgotten by time yeah. and covered over yep. by more soil and silt and whatever else is on the riverbed. I also like the touch that it's not as if she romanticizes nature when we shift to the past. That riverside looks pretty much the same for, for all of the development that has gone on. And this is not to, you know, to kind of pretend that right. nature hasn't been despoiled in the 200 years since. But I do like that she just shifts, as you said. The the riverfront looks pretty much the same then as it does now. If I remember correctly, I noticed that as we open on a large ship Mm -hmm. carrying a bunch of containers going slowly across the frame, when we go back to the past, it's still boats bringing things across the water. They're different sizes. They're made of different materials. Some of this stuff never changes, as perhaps America never really changes. How much do you think someone would pay for a biscuit like that? Wish we had some honey. A glass of whiskey is two silver coins. A pickle is three. The men walk out of the fort loaded with silver and shells and company script. I once saw a man spend five good beaver pelts on a broken fork. That's us from March talking about The Great First Cow. If you see the movie and agree or disagree with our takes or just have any thoughts about the show you'd like to share, you can email us anytime. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We're also online on Facebook at Filmspotting and over on Twitter. I'm at Filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on Film. And if you want to revisit other reviews or maybe check them out for the first time, you could visit the show archives over at filmspotting.net. There we have reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're simply asking, what's your favorite Christopher Nolan film? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, The Rental, directed by Dave Franco. 
stars Alison Brie and Dan Stevens. David Ehrlich says it aspires to do for Airbnbs what Psycho did for motels. I don't think we need that in our life, Josh. At some point, <laughs> we'll be able to go back to an Airbnb. Maybe I don't want to be scared. Maybe not after seeing the rental. We'll have to see. Yeah. Radioactive, the Marie Curie biopic with Rosamund Pike also out. Josh, did you see this movie? Yeah, I did fit this one in. And, you know, two two reasons I was uh, interested in it. One, my daughter, I remember a couple years ago for school, did a report on Marie Curie. She's interested in, in science, so I thought she might want to check it out, uh, my younger daughter, B. And also, it was directed by Marjane Satrapi, who broke on the scene hmm. for her graphic novel Persepolis and also the film version of that novel, which I loved. And I've kind of lost track of her. She's made a few films since. I would say, even with my biopic bias, Adam, Radioactive just jumps that hurdle for me, making it interesting enough to check out. Satrapi brings enough visual inventiveness, I'll just say, to this story. Otherwise, it does hit a lot of familiar biopic beats. It doesn't upend anything in that manner, but there are some flourishes here and there that make it interesting. So yeah, if you're interested in Curie's story um, or want to, or if you're a fan of Satrapi, I would say check out Radioactive. So we're not going to play the song, but that's a full-on Larson recommends. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Without the song, I don't think you could say it's full-on, but yeah, we can say I recommend it. Next week, we close out our Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review with Dunkirk, and we are going to do awards naming our favorite film, our favorite Nolan moment, our favorite performance in the series. This is going to be a tough one. There's some supporting players who appear in multiple films who deserve recognition, and I'm sure we will probably disagree about those, Josh. Yeah, I think we're going to spread these awards around. We have different takes on Nolan, I'd say. We're figuring out uh, in some crucial areas, so that should be fun. If you have an idea for our next OOV review, listeners have already started sending those our way. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I think after we got going, we imagined that we would do another OOV review at some point. We have another marathon that we actually need to get started on probably first. But there are a lot of good candidates who fit right into this, this wheelhouse with Christopher Nolan, maybe about eight films, six to eight films worth talking about. So some good stuff to kick around and maybe get some suggestions on from listeners. Yeah, and I think especially, you know, with big releases not necessarily coming on the horizon, this is a, a good way to to spend our time with the show. So I do hope we get to another one of these. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Angelica Garcia. It comes from the new album, Cha-Cha Palace. More information is at angelicagarciamusic.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.